I'm Ellie Flynn, and this is Underworld, behind the scenes of the NCA. This podcast series unearths the murky world of dangerous criminals across the UK and the incredible work undertaken by the National Crime Agency to bring them to justice. He was one of the number one criminals in Europe. I mean, they've compared him to El Chapo, for example, the El Chapo of Europe. They regarded him as the biggest drug supplier in, on the continent. Where he sat within the sort of echelons of European organised crime in the sort of top ten elements that the whole of Europe's kind of looking at, and that's where we kind of see that individual. It is probably one of the most successful cases I've dealt with where we haven't had a trial in the UK. When I started writing about him, he sent people over to threaten me uh, that if I carried on writing about it, then I was going to get burnt. He's a dangerous man. He's a nasty, violent, horrible man. And that is the man I'm looking at face to face that day. I know what that guy has done, essentially, what he's ordered, essentially, over the years. He's a very dangerous man and capable of operating remotely all around the world. He was probably as big as you can get in the transport side of things. He had the ability to move vast quantities of drugs. The man you're about to hear about was a notorious figure in the British criminal underworld, the head of a global organised crime group, a major player in the international drug trade, and one of the most influential and feared organised criminals in Europe, until he was captured at his Spanish villa in 2015. This is the story of how the NCA finally caught up with Robert Dawes. Episode one, The Crime Lord. The name Robert Dawes was known to British law enforcement agencies long before the NCA came into being. By the time the files landed on NCA desks, Dawes' criminal network spread across the globe. Robert Hickenbottom led what became an international investigation to bring Dawes to justice. Robert Dawes has been a name that's been around the agency, the National Crime Agency, for a number of years, for decades, essentially. He was probably one of our first renowned high-end criminals who was based overseas, but he's from the Midlands area. Um, but we'd worked with international partners for the best part of 20 years in terms of his criminal activities. So uh, for a long time, I've, I've known about the name Rob Dawes. Dawes' criminal career started before he was even a teenager. As you'll hear, he came from a family with a background in crime. He grew up in a town called Sutton in Ashfield. So he's from the Nottinghamshire area, a small mining town, what was a mining town. And he was associated to a number of well-known criminals in the Nottingham area. When uh, cocaine started coming into the Nottingham area, he was very much prevalent on the cocaine supply front. And during the sort of 80s and 90s, uh, Nottingham earned its reputation as, um, in fact, at one time it was called Shottingham because of the gun crime that was going on in the city. And in that time, because of the violence that was used, he went up the echelons and so forth uh, in terms of the supply of cocaine and drugs and forged essentially the, the character that he became. So he ruled by violence and the fear of the violence was, was such that he became very high level. And how would you describe his character? What I'll refer to him is he's clearly an intelligent guy. You know, you don't become somebody like him without being intelligent, so he's that. And 
he is also, however, somebody that some friends refer to him as psycho because one minute he's perfectly fine with them, but the next minute he can turn extremely violent. And when he makes a threat, he ensures it's carried out. So you don't mess with Rob Dawes. The journalist Carl Felstrom has been writing about Robert Dawes for over 15 years and became fascinated with him in the mid-2000s. Dawes had really just been a minor criminal in, in, in many ways, although he started early, he was doing burglaries at the age of 12, and then moved into vehicle crime and also uh, a few convictions for violence. But it's not until we get to uh, 1994, when he's convicted of a, of a robbery, that he, he faces his first significant amount of time in prison. He gets five years for that. Peter Jones remembers the Dawes family well. At the time, he was a detective inspector with the Nottinghamshire Constabulary. Although Robert Dawes would go on to become the leader of an international organised crime group, or OCG, Peter's investigation was focused on his brother. Robert was, was the main man. Uh, he was the one with the intelligence, I think. Uh, John, John was more of a uh, hands-on uh, and local uh, thug come, come drug dealer. But I think it was Robert that was the main dealer. Within two years, his brother had been arrested and his father, and they went down for significant jail terms of, of uh, well, his brother went down for over 20 years. So that didn't seem to have any impact on his criminal empire. He, in fact, began expanding, as well as the cells which he had working in the UK, primarily around his home area of Nottinghamshire. He also began setting up cells in the Netherlands. Those highly secretive, semi-autonomous cells meant that Robert Dawes could compartmentalise his criminal activities, making it more difficult to track him down. If one cell was disrupted, the OCG could continue to operate through its other cells. By now, police chiefs were concerned enough to launch a detailed investigation into his activities. What they discovered was that Dawes had criminal connections all over the country. In particular, he had very good connections to Merseyside and Manchester, and also down south to London. Uh, he was starting to mix with other criminal organised crime groups all the way along. He was learning new, new information about how to stay one step ahead of the authorities. He had a tip-off that he could be in trouble around 2001, and that's when he decided to move to Spain. Robert Dawes was no longer interested in the local crime scene and reinvented himself as the head of an international drug trafficking operation. When the Robert Dawes file landed on Robert Hickingbottom's desk, it was clear that he'd need to engage with law enforcement agencies overseas. Somebody like Dawes is an international player. You cannot do this or that type of investigation just from the UK. It's essential that we work with our international partners. We are um, able to share information and build investigations with those partners. So without that cooperation, we would get nowhere. So it is an absolute essential part of, of any investigation which is truly global. And in this case, uh, because of what Dawes does and did, it was truly global. So that reliance on those, uh, that cooperation with international partners is absolutely essential. NCA staff posted abroad act as a point of contact between police forces, officers back home, and a network of local law enforcement contacts. 
the international liaison officer working out of offices in Spain, explained his role during the Robert Dawes investigation. My role in this particular area was around how we can gather, how we can share information with the Spanish, and being that point of contact between the two, the two countries, the two agencies from the law enforcement perspective. So where we have information where we might want to share with the Spanish, that really helps us drive those relationships um, over a number of years across across all the world, not 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 just in this one post, but across all of our posts and all the work that our, um, my colleagues do there. We worked with very closely Colombian officials uh, in Ecuador, in Venezuela, in South America, but uh, then mainly with European partners, it was the French, but also the Spanish here. But also uh, we began parallel investigations with the Italians and the Dutch, for example because these people are all connected to the trafficking network that Dawes had set up. So his network is intricate, it's extensive, he'd got corrupt officials across the globe working for him. He was also operating in encrypted communications, which made it very, very difficult for law enforcement to get inside and understand what they were doing. And in this particular case, when I started looking at it, it became one of the first investigations that we'd had in the UK that saw the extensive use of what we call encrypted communications. In terms of the telephone network, I have to remember that his rise came at a time of the explosion of the mobile phone. You know, that has increased the capabilities of organised crime groups to carry out their work. But in the early days, he would send a text, a coded text, that the other person at the other end knew how to decode and it would be like something like name of a football team or something like that and that would generate the new phone number that the person was to use to contact him after that when we start getting encrypted communications going on he uh, this is in the sort of 2010 decade he starts to operate a, a mobile phone network called number one bc Criminals have used various different efforts to frustrate law enforcement because they know full well that we'd use things like um, what our foreign colleagues would refer to as wiretap or telephone intercept. So they'd use SIM card swappers, they would use different burner phones and all those sort of things historically. Um, but what came on the market probably a decade or so ago were various types of encrypted communications devices, which criminals would pay 1,500 pounds for, uh, just for their use, and that would be paid every six months, essentially. But what it meant was end-to-end -end encryption, and they were able to use it to frustrate law enforcement because it was often sent by text message that then couldn't be intercepted. And so Dawes, significantly, was one of the first crime groups to be able to use this type of technology and he wouldn't deal with anybody unless they were using the same type of technology. And how difficult does that make your job? We've not seen it used like this before, so we worked with different partners in terms of being able to try and crack the codes, as you can imagine, and do different things with that. But when you're dealing with international law enforcement, particularly those based in Europe, they put a lot of weight into what we refer to as their wiretap technology. So, and without it, uh, it really does guide their investigation overseas. So they, they've always used it traditionally, not divulging anything new here. So they've relied very much on being able to use it and they can use it evidentially on the continent, whereas we cannot here, of course. 
In that regard, a lot of the investigation is based upon that. And so, of course, when they were not picking up doors on the wiretap evidence, they found it very, very difficult to investigate him. And actually, we were at a point where the Spanish judge said, we can't continue with this because we're not picking anything up that's uh, anything criminal. Because I knew what was going on, because I'd come across this well, technology effectively, I had a meeting with a Spanish judge and explained to him that uh, we need to do things differently. And that's when we started looking at other ways in which we might be able to investigate him. Doing things differently meant using all the covert resources available to the NCA, what investigators often refer to as tradecraft. If Dawes had been living in the UK, Robert Hickenbottom would have worked closely with the Crown Prosecution Service, building an evidential case that would hopefully lead to a trial and successful prosecution. But Dawes' international residency meant they had to take a new approach. Andy Young is a barrister, and at the time of the investigation, he was a specialist prosecutor with international justice and organised crime. He told us about the challenges of mounting a prosecution abroad. It is more difficult to prosecute the main offender, um, especially uh, given the way uh, he disguised communications. How do you attribute the man on top uh, to Robert Dawes? We all knew it from intelligence, but didn't, didn't have evidence uh, that would have allowed an extradition at that time. In April 2013, covert investigations provided a lead that would ultimately lead to Robert Dawes' downfall. From that April information that we were getting from our covert inquiries, we picked up that they were going to be transporting 1.3 tonnes of cocaine into France. So from that, we were able to start a, an undercover operation with the French. So sure enough, in September 2013, an Air France plane arrived in Paris with the 32 uh, suitcases within the hold. We had good engagement with our French colleagues, the National Drugs Unit in, in Nanterre in, in Paris. So we got the information that the plane had landed. So I went over and uh, met with our colleagues in France and discussed our next steps. The suitcases had been taken into a warehouse ready for delivery and it was our understanding that they would be broken into four different shipments by lorry at that point. We were expecting the, the first one to be taken to the UK so we're expecting amounts of about 250 plus kilos to be sent to various different places. As it turned out the, the initial lorry load was an Italian truck and because it was then started heading out of, of France uh, to go with the French, we decided that it was a good time to interdict and the first arrests were then made. There were British nationals involved, but there were also mid-tier members of the Camorra Mafia from Naples within that uh, warehouse. And that's significant because the Camorra Mafia, you would expect to be heading up on this sort of thing. But as it turned out, they were merely purchasing uh, from the Doors Network, who had command of the logistics of the cocaine supply into Paris. So the fact that they were just part of it is really significant. But throughout, from April to September, uh, we started what we referred to as Operation Enamoured, which, which I led. The seizure of drugs in France was a huge success and led to a number of arrests across the Robert Dawes organised crime group. As a result of the seizure that the French made, uh, a number of arrests, I think there was 50 odd arrests were made in Venezuela because to be able to do that, 
uh, requires a huge amount of corruption. So a lot of people were arrested at the airport and connected to it in, in Venezuela. So, so they were all dealt with, um, arrested and charged uh, in Venezuela. But the way we looked at to doing it was to connect doors to the main people that we felt were responsible and connected to the shipment. We looked at his crime group that was based in the UK. We targeted various people that we knew were connected to that crime group. We also worked with our regional partners, the East Midlands Special Operations Unit, as well as Nottinghamshire Police, because those persons working to doors were all in, from his home area, his home region, essentially. And in fact, the people that had gone out to Venezuela on his behalf in April were from that, uh, from that area of the UK. By the end of two years, we'd have arrested something like 100 people, numerous high-end drug seizures, all of which uh, resulted in uh, convictions at court. And that should have been the end of it all. But it wasn't, because Robert Dawes was still a free man. It would have been 1.3 tonnes cocaine seizure at, in Paris, and that would have been it. That was what normally happens. You arrest people who are on the ground or immediately connected to it. But because of our intelligence that we had, we knew that Dawes was the man behind it. So we set about trying to prove that he was the person who was behind that shipment of cocaine. And that is what's significantly different about this whole investigation and why it is uh, probably one of our best examples of an agency that we've got of, of, of looking at and, and having an investigation which looks at what we refer to as a local to global investigation. I taken out the top player right down to the people that he worked with, even into uh, the East Midlands region of the UK. So. We had various investigations then which connected him, or we looked to connect him to that particular seizure. For the Operation Enamoured team, the work continued. Bit by bit, we're putting together a picture over two years of how Dawes operates, his network, who's part of it, who's connected to it, who's making the decisions. And uh, from that, we're building up a whole picture of how we might go about essentially capturing him. And effectively, that led us in 2015 to a hotel in Madrid. The Guardia Seville had been monitoring Dawes' phones, but by this stage, his heavily encrypted system meant nothing was coming through from telephone intercepts. They decided to go back to basics, with 24-7 physical surveillance, which led to the discovery that Dawes had an important meeting at the five-star Villa Mania Hotel in Madrid. With only hours' notice, a plan was hatched to put surveillance in place. We joined Robert Hickingbottom on a trip to visit that hotel, a location that became pivotal to the operation to capture doors. So we stood outside the uh, Villamania Hotel. It's uh, a little bit different to how I'd imagined, actually. It's a fairly modern building, quite swanky. It's, in this, it's a very nice area of north-central Madrid. It's a busy thoroughfare. Um, but it's in an area, I guess, which you describe it as similar to Park Lane, Mayfair in London. It's that sort of an area. Always a bit of a strange thing, having seen it on video, having listened to it a number of times, to actually be here is, is quite interesting. It's, it's got easy access on the road, but also I know the underground car park next to it, which is possibly under video surveillance or, or whatever, but it means he can secrete his car away off the main public area, so uh, probably a good reason for choosing this particular hotel, I think. 
Iguada Seville had literally hours to prepare for it. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't uh, long in the planning. It was very opportunist, but it's sufficient time essentially to, to get things in place, to arrange for devices to be uh, arranged and uh, video footage to be gained. So just long enough for it to be uh, achieved, basically, yeah. Robert Dawes wasn't in Madrid for a holiday or a city break. He was there on business, serious business. He was meeting with two foreign nationals, a Colombian called Sapida and a Venezuelan national called Rincon. Two very interesting people. Sapida himself was quite a high-level member of the Cali Mafia from Colombia. Rincon, probably a lower-level criminal. Interesting also that during the discussion that they had in the hotel, he gave instructions about the use of secure communication devices. And one of these devices he gave to Rincon during the actual meeting. So he gave him instructions to go out the next day over to Venezuela and then on to Colombia to meet a particular person. Interestingly enough, we did look at doing a surveillance operation on Rincon that next day. We covered him over to Caracas, got him at Caracas airport. But uh, rather frustratingly, there was a shootout in the actual airport. Nothing to do with our particular operation, but it obviously distracted things. And so he was lost at the airport. So we never actually covered the meeting he had post meeting with Dawes here in this hotel. The Guardia Seville faced an immediate challenge. How could they monitor what Dawes was saying to his business associates? and record that evidence in a busy hotel lounge. At that time, it was using what we referred to as drop downs. So recording devices that if we were able to get close to him, that we were able to then uh, put a recording device close to a meeting that he was having and be able to record a conversation, essentially. Um, so it's a technique that we've used a lot here um, and we continue to use, but uh, it wasn't widely used by our investigating uh, colleagues in Spain. So we, we bought the technology for them to use. They then deployed that technology and uh, to good success. In the recording made that day, which you're about to hear, Robert Dawes can be heard bragging about the Paris seizure, telling his associate that it was the biggest job they did last year. It crashed. It's all over the news, you don't see it? Yeah, well, I saw it. Yeah, as well. It's the biggest one they ever have. And that's been to you? Mm. From Venezuela. It's the biggest one they ever did in Paris, to Paris. To Paris? Oh. So how'd they go? Yeah, they must make it up. You don't know what it is, you think. If he goes to Venezuela, if he knows anybody in Venezuela, they know that story. That's the biggest story they last year. Every fucking police involved from Europe is talking to Venezuela. Many, many people have problems in Venezuela. I remember the day quite clearly a phone call of, we've got something if you want to pop over and have a little listen. And then have the pleasure of ringing Rob up to say, uh, oh, by the way, I've got something you might be interested in. Yeah, and I think he nearly fell off his seat when he sort of, when I sort of was able to sort of briefing on what, what would, um, you know, the Spanish had managed to achieve and how we'd sort of help get through that. And hear from the horse's mouth around the sort of scale of their operation, the penetration that they'd managed to achieve globally and corruption elements that they'd pushed and then that key nugget really for us in terms of oh and by the way 
the big seizure we're talking around that was that was my piece of work that was me that was and you know that was that was phenomenal to hear that and then obviously hear it repeated in spanish because he didn't speak enough spanish to communicate it to another person so to hear it twice and so we worked a bit with them on in terms of going through that understanding what part of the bits and explaining where some of the english um colloquialism what they meant as well and how some of that work came through so yeah really positive uh, experience there it's a fairly eureka moment because i was in discussion with our liaison officer that we have here in, in madrid he relayed the facts of what was discussed to me uh and i just couldn't get over the fact that they'd they'd got this this footage and uh not only that it was so much detail it was precise but it was also fairly wide-ranging. They'd had a two-hour discussion talking about their whole criminality. Dawes was talking about what he did, who he did things with, high-level corruption across the globe, how he did things. But again, importantly, the most important thing for us was what he discussed in terms of that seizure in Paris, the, the 1.3 tons of cocaine. I think he broke his own golden rule, you know, which was you know, not to, to brag about these things. And I just think it's one of those crazy moments where you catch somebody off guard and the significance of it to him was massive because what's transpired since is that was the only element that he thought was going to take him down. I think that was the moment for sure, the, the, the conversation in the hotel because he's he's convicted on his own words, you know. Had that conversation not taken place, he would have been in a strong position in court to defend himself. Yeah. He could have come here and he could have discussed anything. Yeah. It could have been something fairly sort of minor, but it, in this case it wasn't. He discussed everything we could have possibly wished for and therefore it led to his downfall. The evidence gathered at the Villa Mania Hotel should have been enough to trigger an arrest. But for prosecutor Andy Young, there was a lot of work to do. I'd been involved in the arrangements with the French all the way through. I was the legal lead, if you like, in the coordination meetings and the joint investigation team we had with the French. I was involved in persuading the French to invite the Spaniards. Uh, and it was at that stage that the Spaniards uh, were persuaded to reveal to the French the, the, the evidence they had gathered. So what came next then? How did you end up making that arrest? You talk about cooperation of international partners. But what it also showed at that time was how complicated it all is because our laws don't match those in Spain and those in France. They are prosecutor-led, for example, whereas we're not. I went over to Spain and I watched the coverage because we captured it on video from the hotel as well as, well as the audio coverage. And I was in the office of the Guarda Civil headquarters in Madrid and I watched this and I knew we'd captured the evidence that was significant. Um, so I went back to our French colleagues who we were engaging frequently with. Um, we had something with them called a JIT, a Joint Investigation Team. And JIT meetings are conducted at, at, through something called Eurojust in The Hague, um, where it would be prosecutors sat around a table discussing the case. And um, so I told them the news that uh, the Spanish had captured what we wanted. They invited them along to the next uh, joint investigation team meeting. And at the coffee break, the head of the National Drugs French team came to me and said, Rob, when you saw that video and listened to it, were you drunk? I said, well, what do you mean? He says, the Spanish are saying they don't have it. 
they don't have that information, <laughs> which I was completely perplexed about. And the Spanish at that meeting refused then to say they'd actually got it. The meeting finished because we didn't have the evidence. What followed was due to a change in Spanish law. Although the recording had been lawfully obtained, a recent constitutional court ruling meant that it was no longer admissible. However, when a new law was passed, the Spanish were finally able to share the covert recordings with the French after all. Finally, the prosecution could go ahead. On the day of the arrest, Robert and his NCA colleagues flew out to Spain and met at a hotel not far from Dawes' villa. So we're outside the uh, Sunset Beach Hotel, um, beachside in Benal Medina. And this is where, on the evening before the searches took place, we met with our Spanish, French and Europol partners uh, for a briefing. So this was about 8.15 in the evening, if I recall rightly. This briefing would last for about an hour to discuss the tactical options for the next day, at which premises would be searched, the order, who would go there, who would go to which property, and this was all decided upon uh, from this uh, particular hotel. So just coming in, I, by recollection, I seem to recall that the meeting room itself was over to the left here, the corridor down to the left. We brought a team across with us from the UK for this briefing, by the way, well, for the actual action day. So essentially we decided who was going where the, the next morning and naturally as the senior investigating officer I was keen to go to the actual residence of Dawes. So uh, myself and two or three other of our guys were assigned to that particular address. So this is two, two years of work and cooperation and it was interesting that um, you know we're here with the French as well as uh, Europol because it was a collective effort. We're working with partners here. Two years of collaboration is, is finally is about to, to come to uh, some real results, hopefully. I and mean, we, were, we were quite nervous in terms of how it would all play out. Would he be there, for example? And some of our intel building over the week beforehand determined that actually Dawes wasn't at home. So we were concerned that he might not be there, but uh, very last minute information that we got confirmed that he was. So yeah, two years of good cooperation. What's going to happen? Are we going to find anything? What's going to play out? So, uh, so the excitement is there. The nerves are also there. Uh, yeah, the adrenaline is pumping by this stage. And um, yeah, we're, we're really looking forward to seeing what might play out the next day. The following morning, they were up before sunrise to rendezvous with the Guardia Civil. Our Spanish colleagues, of course, were very, very professional. At the end of that briefing, essentially, uh, we were left knowing that we'd be meeting here at this service station 4.15 in the morning. So this service station is uh, on the outskirts of uh, Bena Medina. It's fairly busy right now, but at that time of the morning, it was fairly quiet. When we, when we got here, we saw a huge number of officers, all in ballistics gear, all armed. There was an armed Hummer as well. Further instructions were given to us at that point that we would travel in convoy from this service station and go directly to the home address of Dawes from here. The whole operation about going in through the gates, in through the doors, getting to him, it has to be extremely quick. 
and they, they did it to perfection essentially. So, uh, but they were all armed, of course, you know, to do that because of the risk that he presented. He's arrested, he's extradited to France, but because of the terrorist attacks in Paris, his, his trial is delayed and delayed and delayed. And he actually is not then uh, in court up until December 2018. So it takes three years. Interestingly enough, they've brought various witnesses to the hearing, but the only one in terms of international law enforcement to give evidence is myself. So I gave information and I gave my evidence for about four hours in the Court d'Assise in Paris. I did that by video link from the French Embassy uh, here in London. And at the end of that trial, Dawes is essentially given 22 years. He's found guilty and he's given 22 years imprisonment, which is absolutely hugely significant in France because their sentences are not normally anywhere near that. And the reason why it was so important that he was heard in the court d'assises is because of the, the amount of sentence that would be given to him and handed to him. It's a great result. But only this year now, he's been given another five years uh, in April this year. And it goes back to the Spanish judge and the, the recording uh, that was made in that public space in the hotel. Dawes had paid his uh, defence counsel to introduce forged documents in the court file. So there's a document there that purports to come from the Spanish judge saying that it wasn't legal at the time as an effort to basically get off the, the whole thing because he knew that the whole re the recording was pivotal in terms of his guilty finding. So he's been given another five years now as a result of, of that. To serve in France? Yes. A lot of colleagues have worked against him, his crime group, throughout uh, a number of years, and not as well known as others, but the spread and breadth of, where, of, of that activity globally, the violence that was imposed as well, the significant amounts of uh, money laundering, the scale of um, the volumes of cocaine that we were seeing moving, and, and just the network of other criminal contacts. You mentioned that you gave evidence in his trial. Does that put you at any sort of risk? Yes, it does, of course. It's, uh, there's intelligence there to connect into various other acts of violence. But that's, that's why you do the job, because if you, if you didn't aim to get people like him, there's no point in doing the job. You've got to go for the, the worst, and you're looking at the proportionality and risk every day. Dawes was one of those people that uh, he was quite happy to operate under the radar and you know, got very, very upset when I started writing about him, you know, to the extent where he sent people over to threaten me uh, that if I carried on writing about it, then I was going to get burned. And um, I just felt that, and this is a feeling a lot of writers who go into this area feel, uh, you, you're almost safer to carry on than you are to, you know, give up on it and say, well, you know, that's as far as I'm going to go. I'm glad that I did, but... I think dealing with it over time, you sort of, you kind of know that you it's always in the back of your head that something bad might happen. But at the same time, you kind of, you, you, your mind and body learns to deal with it over time. And so it becomes not so much of a, a stressful thing. Um, I don't know if that explains it properly, but it's the best I can do to explain explain how it goes. But of course, you have to worry for 
the people around you as well, which is much more, to me, much more worrying. You know, my wife and and uh, you know and and my family. If I had children, I would never have um, even thought about writing in detail about some of these guys. That's for sure. You look at him and you realise this is not just an ordinary man. This is a man that is a very high end criminal boss who's uh, behind a lots of nasty events, violence. Um, we've got a lot of pride in terms of bringing this sort of a person to justice. That's what we do. That's what we do a job for, to bring that type of person to justice. And that uh, gives a great deal of satisfaction. I think the violence ultimately is about sending a message. And so he creates this aura around himself that really everybody who deals with him on a criminal basis is worried that if they don't carry out the orders that he uh, gives them or something goes wrong that they're going to be in, in in a lot of trouble and may well not just themselves face violence but their families may well face some violence as a result and so once you create as with all of these criminals once you create that kind of atmosphere sometimes you don't have to do anything at all because the 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 myth is already there and it creates fear to the extent that that people not only will follow orders but if they are arrested they won't say anything i think from looking at the potential challenges we had right at the beginning it was fantastic it was it was really good to sort of get to that point with all those hurdles and barriers and challenges were overcome but i think importantly as well to look at the status of the individual the reach they had the damage they were causing the networks they had through into Camorra mafia into the biker gangs in holland and all that sort of breadth into south america and the relationships they were doing we're right at the top end of what we're trying to deliver with that impact coming through to the uk this was truly probably one of our best examples of, of taking out an organized crime group dismantling it from from top to bottom, top being doors, but then all his different operating uh, platforms based over in uh, the continent and in South America. Towards the end of the story, you know, you have a guy who, who has connections globally all over the place. I mean, you know, like banking connections in 60 different countries. And, you know, he knew uh, he had connections to people who had airport workers and uh, ports authority workers. Uh, in virtually every city uh, where he, he could offer up to, to get drugs into that country. And, um, you know, that's the significance of him, I think, that he, he, he is linked to so many other groups who are, who are of significance that you have to say some of those networks wouldn't have existed without him. found a cutting um, from a, an article in a Spanish newspaper the other day that followed the arrest phases. Um, that we, uh, we did in Spain with the Guardia Seville, and it was titled Eight Years to Hunt the Crime Lord. And I thought that was a fairly apt title, and it also put into scale the content, the, the time it took to do that. Uh, and he certainly featured really highly for us within the NCA, within Spain. This is not me saying that he was the most prolific drug supplier in Europe. This is the Spanish saying this. You know, they had deduced that he'd achieved that status from the work, the investigations that they'd got. And the only way you're going to do that is having a sophisticated criminal network at your disposal. So that's the people he associates with, at political level, his corruption, the threats and the violence that he employs. It all comes together and that's why he achieved the status he did.
so it was absolutely a high-end operation. He chose the dark side and that's what he did. Um, and unfortunately now he's paying the consequences for it.